Happy Saturday. It's February 3rd, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Michael, we are only 11 days away from Valentine's Day. I can't wait to see you very soon. And we have a love fest of an episode of Morning Meeting today. We've got romance, we have intrigue, we have drama, and we even have Truman Capote. Well, at least his ghost. We do. Tantalizing show today, as you know. First, it's been more than three years now since Jennifer Dulos, a mother of five in Connecticut, its wealthy Fairfield County disappeared. Her body has still not been found, and her husband, accused of the murder, is dead by his own hand. But now, his lover is on trial, and many wonder, will the truth ever be known? Rich Cohen, who has been following this story for us from the beginning, has the latest. Then, the new miniseries about Truman Capote and his destructive feud with the Swans, otherwise known as the most powerful and beautiful women in New York City, is out. And who better to tell us about the gossip behind the feud than Sam Kashner, who details how Capote committed a form of social suicide when he spilled their secrets. And speaking of beautiful, hard-to-please women, Paul Campbell has a different perspective. He'll be here to tell us what you learn when you date a supermodel. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Michael, there's only one place we can begin. We have to talk about feud Capote versus the Swans. I mean, did you see the first episode? Of course. Okay, this is airmail porn, Michael. I'm sorry to say. It's like, what's not to love? The Upper East Side, the 1960s, Babe Paley, Truman Capote literary star. It does not get any more us than this. I was addicted. I could not turn it off. Michael, let's talk about Tom Hollander. I mean, I'll have what he's having. I don't know how he completely transformed himself into Capote, but it's weird. And I'm here for it. We also have to mention Naomi Watts' Babe Paley. I mean, incredible. I Who knew? You know, a brown bouffant, a little bit of Givenchy, and boom, she becomes Babe Paley. And it's a fascinating portrayal. I love everything about this show. Anyway, but thank goodness we don't have to just rely on my gushing. We have a real expert here, Sam Kashner, who's a writer at large for Airmail, and he knows the Capote universe intimately. We are thrilled to have him here to bring some insight into this great new show and also into the man behind it. Welcome, Sam Kashner. Hi, Sam. Hello, Ashley, Michael. Hello. Sam, I'm tempted to call you Willy Wonka today because this story is pure candy. I mean, I can't decide what part of it I like best. First of all, have you been waiting for this moment for this feud show to come out? I mean, you are an expert in all things Capote. Oh, no, hardly. But it is kind of great in a way that there's still more gold in the Capote mine. I was really happy to see that John Robin Bates, who wrote the episodes, and Gus Van Sant is directing it. So, And it's kind of impeccably cast, don't you think? Sort of amazing. It's an important story in a lot of ways. I mean, for people who are interested in Truman and what happened to him. So Sam, let's take us back. I mean, when he wrote In Cold Blood, he was a literary sensation. Fame, fortune, acclaim, assignments, it all came raining down on him. What happened next? Well, it was the best of times and the worst of times for for Truman. I mean, you're right. It did make him a celebrity. It gave him a lot of money. He was able to buy a beautiful, great house in Stegoponic. And he had his famous black and white ball at the plaza. But it was the pinnacle of his literary fame. And I think that that's partly why we can figure that he went to this material in which other people feel that he's kind of betrayed long friendships and intimacies to create another sensational work, that that might have been part of the intention. He became heavily involved with alcohol and drugs. He 
kind of really sort of fell in love with Studio 54. And in a way, his celebrity kind of drained his gifts as a writer in some way. He was enmeshed too in this circle of the Upper East Side Beaumont, right? And who were some of the players in that universe? And how did his relationships with them unfold? Well, he was very tied with Babe Paley, who was the wife of William Paley, who was one of really the most powerful men in New York, if not the country, he was the head of CBS. And he kind of reigned over that network. And then there was a woman named Slim Keith, who was at one point had been married to the director Howard Hawks, and she later would marry British royalty and entered the British aristocracy. And Gloria Vanderbilt, Lee Radziwill, who was a grudge-holding sister to Jacqueline Kennedy, and CZ Guest. All of these were women who loved having Truman around. He was a great storyteller. He was a good listener. And they had, of course, not an inkling that they would wind up in this work, which kind of blew up. Like as someone said, he was building an atomic bomb in his apartment at UN Plaza, which at the time was a very posh address. The Kennedys, Robert Kennedy had an apartment there and Johnny Carson. And so it was kind of a storied address. Let's talk about that work. Let's cut to, as you note, it's 1975. Esquire magazine appears, as you reveal in your story, and he's got a story in there called The Kopask, which is, it sets the New York, that whole world of Upper East Side women, it sets them aflame. The title comes from the restaurant. Tell us how this story, what it's about, and why it basically goes off like an atomic bomb and takes down its author as well as many other people. Yes. Well, The Kopask was published in Esquire, and the setting really is the restaurant where a woman named Lady Coolberth meets a young hustler, I believe named B.P. Jones, is it? And essentially, the piece is a kind of monologue in which as she looks about the room in the restaurant, she sees these various people and begins to kind of dish the deep dish gossip about them. And while in the book, their names are disguised, they all knew who they were. And there are some kind of notorious, if not scatological stories told about these various women. And he's also very catty about them too. I mean, he does one story in which I believe it's a disguised version of Gloria Vanderbilt not recognizing one of her husbands. And she recalled that incident, I'm sure. And this Anderson Cooper told me really hurt his mother very deeply, that story, because she was also being characterized as kind of ditzy. And in fact, she had a painting, he told me, of Truman. And she was so hurt by the reveal that she took the painting off the wall and put it in storage, really for the rest of her life, practically. And then there was a notorious story told about Babe Paley and her, really her husband, William Paley, having a, not even an affair, but a sexual liaison with probably Nelson Rockefeller's wife, Happy Rockefeller, who's characterized in the book in a very, very unflattering way. I won't go into the details in case this is a family podcast, but it was very, very intimate anecdote. And it appeared in Truman's book. So all these people knew who they were. Tragically, 
a woman named Anne Woodward, who had shot and or murdered her husband, depending on who you believe, Truman told that story as well. And she was a suicide just before the publication of uh, Lakote Basque. And it was believed that possibly she was sent an early copy of Esquire, saw it and took her own life. I mean, it's there's no real proof one way or the other, or just maybe the anxiety about the publication of Lakote Basque led her to die by her own hand, as they say. But it really caused a sensation and also destroyed Truman's life in a lot of ways because he was now shunned by these people he kind of adored. And at the same time, he was incredulous about it. He said, well, why are they treating me this way? I mean, don't they know that I'm a writer? And was I just there for my health, my entertainment or theirs? So, and he was shunned by most of them for the rest of his life. CZ Guest and Johnny Carson's ex-wife, Joanne, remained close to him and cared for him. Babe Paley refused to speak to him. He tried calling her practically on her deathbed, and she refused. Her husband refused to put her on the phone. And I think he was devastated by it. Sam, what's so fascinating is it just takes a moment to sort of, you've got the great line, I think, from Liz Smith in here, who wrote a story about it later, the fallout. And she says, it's one thing to tell gossip about your 50 best friends, tell those stories around town, sort of thing, to publish them. And Truman, as you note, he's exiled. He loses the one thing he wants, which is access to this society life. And we kind of forget, this is all pre-social media, this is all when there was discretion and he kept these things in the closet. I think that's why this story is his story and what happened, the story he wrote, and then the story of what happened to him afterward. It's stunning. Yes. Well, he might have mentioned this to Liz Smith in that story. And in fact, it was Liz, Michael, who I think outed the people who were pseudonymously named. I think she was the one who kind of lifted the veil, wasn't she? And the other thing, which is kind of memorable, Truman said, well, you know, all literature is gossip. He said, good grief. He said something like, what's Anna Karenina or Madame Bovary, but gossip on some level. And his model, without sounding too highfalutin about it, his model was Proust, La Recherche in Search of Lost Time. It was Proust didn't live long enough to experience whatever the blowback was going to be of his great work. That was always Truman's sort of model. And of course, the other element is, was there more to Answered Prayers than what was finally published? That's the piece. It also deals with, where is it? Did Truman burn the rest of the manuscript? Was it true that he gave Mrs. Carson a key to a Greyhound bus locker with the rest of the manuscript? Or was he just sort of shamming everyone? Right. For decades, he said this was going to be his great book. And yet he died. Died, as you also know, tragically. I mean, he died at 59. He didn't even live to be 60. We forget how basically young he was when he drank himself to death, essentially. And the manuscript, the final chapters, they've either never existed or only in his mind, or they were scattered to the winds, right? Yes. I mean, it's really hard to know. I mean, look, he's been gone this summer. I think it'll be 40 years since Truman's death in Mrs. Carson's house in Los Angeles. We're still looking for the rest of Answered Prayers. It's kind of like the literary equivalent of Amelia Earhart's playing. So personally, I don't think the rest of the manuscript ever existed. 
And uh, apparently the feud, Ryan Murphy and John Robin Bates, they, toward the end of, I don't think I'm ruining anything by saying that they speculate on what could have happened to the manuscript. But I think that the secret died with Truman if it ever existed. Sam, one of the things that's difficult to square is Truman's legacy as a writer, right? Which is so remarkable. And then his more complicated legacy as a person. How do you square those? And after you've done so much research and reporting on him, where do you land on that? Hmm. Oh, gosh. Well, great writers, genius writers, great artists are often can be terrible people. This is the great dilemma. I wouldn't want it to have spent a lot of time with Ezra Pound. Picasso was kind of a fink. So I actually think Truman was kind of a great friend and people really loved him and he was great company. But if you try to square it, I think you get into trouble. You just have to take these great works and appreciate them and realize that they were made by kind of complicated and conflicted people. I mean, by the way, actually, I mean, a lot of people don't believe Answered Prayers is a great work that it's a lazy, tired work at best and misogynistic and just not good writing. But I kind of disagree. I think it's kind of, it's sort of fascinating. And I think he ultimately gave sort of, in a way, in a weird way, I feel he gave kind of meaning to a lot of kind of shallow lives. As he said, without their money, a lot of these people would just be lost. So, Well, Sam, as always, a wonderful piece and a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for both. Thank you. Take care and thank you again. Michael, I'm so into this show. I'm going to start wearing evening gowns and putting my hair in a bouffant and wearing lipstick all the time. You're not even going to recognize me. Does that mean I have to start talking in a very low voice like this and drawing things out in order to talk to you, Ashley? I think you do, Michael. That's my attempt at a Truman Capote. <laughs> when you come to London, you and I are going to go to dinner at the River Cafe. I've already promised Ruthie and the team there that we're going to do it. And you know what? I'm going to wear one of those dresses and you're going to act like Truman. Is that too campy even for us? Maybe. You can wear the dress and the bouffant and smoke the cigarettes and I'll do my best to be a good walker for you and a companion. I just hope that people remember what a brilliant writer he was. I mean, In Cold Blood, still one of my favorite books. I feel like his legacy is being a bit tarnished by this show, or maybe I'm totally wrong because obviously we haven't seen it all yet, but he was completely genius. He was genius. One of the things I loved when I worked at Esquire is we had this archives closet. And then when you went into the closet where every, all the old issues were kept, there was also these two filing cabinets and they were like almost like little recipe file. And each of them had a note card that was an assignment card back then. It was all done by hand, some assistant typing it out. And I remember one day flipping through it and I came across the assignment card for this story where you can also see what Capote got paid, which was $25,000. And that was in $1975, which I just want to point out, I did the math, would be the equivalent of $140,000 today. Are you kidding me? Man, word rates have changed. Well, if you're looking for a different side of social conflicts gone wrong, we've got an amazing story here from Rich Cohen, as usual, which sort of ties into the other side of destructive social behavior. Yes, indeed. Rich is a writer at large for Airmail, and he has been covering the long saga of Photostulos for quite some time now. Rich is here to catch us up. Welcome, Rich. Yeah, thanks for having me. Rich, you've been following this story for a while now, but we haven't heard from you. What brings Photostulos back into the picture? And first of all, who is the guy? Bring us up to speed. What is this trial going on that you're following? Well, it's this trial that sort of shook Fairfield County, Connecticut, where I live. A woman who's very sympathetic, who 
I crossed paths with in all kinds of ways, life's with. She's from New York. She went to Brown. She's a writer. She was a young playwright in the city at NYU. We have a lot of friends in common and know a lot of the same people. She moved out to Connecticut and she got married kind of, I think she got to a point where she really wanted to have kids. She got married to this guy, Fotis Dulos, who she met at Brown and was very handsome and kind of almost like a movie star kind of guy, but he kind of flew under the, the radar and he should have tripped certain warning signs, but I think he didn't because of the familiarity of having gone to college and thinking that you know people that went to college or from your hometown, when maybe you don't really. And one of the lessons of this story for me has always been, you don't really know anybody. And they had five kids in seven years, which is a big stress on a marriage. He had a business that built these kind of McMansions, high-end homes, but the business wasn't really a going profitable concern. He was being bankrolled in his lifestyle by her father, who sort of kept the whole thing under control. And when her father died, the whole thing kind of fell apart. He had an affair with this woman named Michelle Traconis, referred to in all the documents as the paramour. She took her kid, she moved to New Canaan, she got it away from him. They had this very contentious divorce. And one day she went to drop her kids off at the New Canaan Country School and vanished. And every sign pointed to him. Rich, when did this happen? May 24th, 2019. That's when she disappeared. And then this sort of police case began where the cops were putting together this unbelievable case because they never found her body. And it's very hard to prove somebody guilty of a murder if there is no body. Because there have actually been cases where people have been tried for murder and then the person turns out not to be dead. So that's the very bad. So it's very hard to build this case. Dulos's lawyer had this famous Gone Girl defense where he claimed that she had run away like the book Gone Girl and Jillian Flynn and said, ounce this, because this is a horrible thing. Because of course, one's a novel and one's real life. And in real life, this is what happens. The person is dead in real life, usually. And it's usually the husband in a situation like this. So the police put together this incredible case with video surveillance, DNA, and it's incredible. If you read it, it's like a CSI. What their work was unbelievable. And what Fotis Dulos didn't realize is that it seems like he had a very elaborate way to cover his track. But it's like the whole time he was covering his tracks, he was on some kind of video or film. When he realized he was going to prison, and he was probably never getting out. He killed himself in his garage, at his car, sealed up the, unplugged the carbon monoxide monitor and killed himself that way. Gone. Never been found. Finally declared dead in October. Botus is gone. And only two people that might, that were charged remain. This guy, Kent Ma Whitney, who'd been Fotis Dulos' lawyer, not working with him and supposedly helped give him an alibi and the paramour. Now, after years of waiting and delays because of COVID, because changes of lawyers, all kinds of arguments, finally now, all these years later, Michelle Traconis, the paramour, is on trial. I, who everybody who got into his life, he ruined their life. He really ruined Jennifer Farber's, Dulos' wife. He killed her. And Michelle Traconis, who has become a victim of a lot of hate because she's the other woman, Whatever you think about it, this guy ruined her life, too. She might go to prison if she's convicted, and who knows? It's the middle of a case for as much as 20 years, and the last several years of her life, she sort of lived this fishbowl existence, often with the GPS monitor and not free, and sort of been dragged in front of the public. So it's a very intense, horrible situation that all grows out of a bad divorce, which if you live where I live, which is Fairfield County, you know that this place, along with where I grew up, which is northern Cook County, Illinois, is kind of a kingdom 
of these divorces, which seem like one of the arguments why it's good not to have much money. Because too much money means you can fight these epic battles that if you didn't have money, you'd have to just get it on with your life. I, think. I mean, so Rich, we're still talking about a family of five children, right? That have two dead parents. I mean, what do we know about the Dulos children, who they're living with, how they're faring? Is that a story that people are covering? I think people have shown a lot of respect of trying to leave the children out of it as much as possible, because I mean, that's just think about that legacy. I mean, the worst legacy in the world, a lot of money I think they're going to get, but just shows you money is not, not only is it not everything, it's almost nothing. And they're now being raised by their grandmother, who's Jennifer Farber's mother, who's 89, living in an apartment in the Upper East Side, attending these sort of very elite boarding schools in the city that we all know the names of. And they have each other, man. I mean, that's a lot of siblings. So at least they have each other because when you come from a family like that, you're your own nation and no one else can really understand you. They're like citizens of their own sad nation is how I look at it. So Rich, let's go back to Michelle Traconis. You've been attending the trial in Stanford, Connecticut there and watching this unfold. It seems he's been undone. You talk about this case that law enforcement has been so methodical in preparing us, but she's really kind of been undone by her statements to the police in her interrogations. Well, you notice something when you read a lot of about crime trials and study crime, which is there's a certain kind of person who they think the cops are stupid or something. So it's like they think the cops are just going to tell them what they know. And then they kind of come up with a story to cover these facts. And the truth is that when you watch them over a series of days and they've shown the jury six hours of her interrogations early in the case, and she's obviously in a very stressful situation, the cops are withholding information and they're letting her talk. And every time they present a new bit of information that contradicts something she's already said, she changes her story. And the cops, I think, were hoping that she would cooperate and she would tell them where Jennifer's body is, which would close this or allow some kind of closure. Bad word, but in this case, fits for a lot of people, including the kids, because there's always that question out there. And she hasn't done it, which means to me, maybe she truly doesn't know, because I would think she would trade that for some leniency. So the cops is sort of like, kind of hang herself, or as my father used to say, she hung herself on her own words. And one of the things that they found when they did a search warrant of the Dulos house was she'd already said what she did that day, like, tell us everything you did the day Jennifer disappeared. Then they searched the house and they found like in the garbage, these things that the police called alibi scripts, where she'd written everything that she told them she did. Everything that she did, which they knew about, which was incriminating, was on that list. She had to explain why she didn't include the fact that on the day of her killing, they drove from their house, which is in Farmington, Connecticut, all the way down to a very rough area of Hartford, where they dumped all this, which turned out to be Jennifer's bloody bra, which they showed to the jury. Jennifer's bloody t-shirt, which they showed to the jury. Zip ties that had I guess DNA or blood on them that possibly were used to bound Jerry Jennifer. Work club that might have been used in the cleanup. Paper towels that might have been used in the cleanup. And all this stuff was thrown out. So how do you explain that? And Michelle Traconis is basically saying he was just throwing out the garbage. He's a contractor. I wasn't paying attention. I was just along for the ride. I thought we were going to Starbucks. And they did go to Starbucks. But somebody passed pointed out to get from where they lived, where they went, they passed six other Starbucks. So it's in a way it's a circumstantial case. And you can feel some sympathy for Michelle Traconis because she's been left holding the bag for this guy. Rich, what's the state of the trial right now? And where do you think the jury will fall? Okay. So first of all, I'm surprised and based on the evidence that I saw from leading, reading police reports and everything else, 
I assumed that she would settle this case because it seemed to be like a bad case to be in. And the fact that she hasn't settled means to me maybe there's no good deal for her and she's better off taking her chances in trial. Now, we're sort of the middle of the case. The prosecution is still putting on its case. Michelle has a really, really good lawyer named John Schoenhorn, who is going to do, I think, he'll watch it. It'll be like when you used to, when I was a kid and I'd watch those court shows. I'm like, well, there's no way they can beat this. There's no way. Wait a second. They answered every question. So I expect a very, very good case for him. I don't know what the jury's going to do. They've had problems with the jury. They've already lost three jurors for different reasons, one of which was one of the jurors at the elevator bank told one of the prosecutors, we love you. So that dinged her. Another one said she had to go on an emergency trip to Europe. So this is a long trial. So like a six-week trial, and it's super intense. Based on what I know, I think they find her guilty. But I've been wrong over and over and over again. So I have to assume I'll probably be wrong this time too. Well, Rich, I disagree with you. You're never wrong. Your <laughs> insight on this case, is, as we know, it's been two, three years now. And the insight you've brought to it and the reporting and the perspective, it's been fantastic. I would not be wrong to say we will have you back as this trial reaches its conclusion and to find out where the jury falls on this. So thank you. I'm looking forward to having you back for the next chapter in this saga. Yeah. And I hope to see you both at some point in less tragic circumstances. For sure. Thank you very much, man. Okay. Talk to you, Michael. Bye, Ashley. Got a very personal story from Paul Campbell, who's a British writer, musician, and entrepreneur. He's here to tell us about what happens when dreams actually do come true. In his case, he ended up finding an incredible woman that he enjoyed spending time with. And then in short, it all went to hell. This was all complicated by the fact that she was a world famous supermodel. We're very happy to have him here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Paul. So, Paul, you've managed to live the dream of so many people. You dated a supermodel. (laughs) Tell us how this came to transpire. Well, it all started one Saturday night. I was in my house in England. I'm a musician, and I just finished a concert with a professional symphony orchestra. And I was back at home, wired from the gig, trying to relax, and I couldn't think of anything that would calm me down. There was nothing on TV that seemed interesting, and I couldn't concentrate on my book. So I did what I sometimes do as a sort of rather weird way of relaxing, which is I opened a dating app. And then this picture came up and I thought, surely that can't be who I think it might be, someone whose face I immediately recognized. And I kind of leafed through the profile and I thought, oh, what the hell, and pressed the like button. And she'd already liked me, which was a bit of a surprise, to put it mildly. So that was how it all started. Now, Paul, was this someone who you had liked, so to speak, from afar for years or decades before? How famous are we talking? Extremely famous. And yeah, I think I'd known her face for probably 40 years. I'll be careful what I say, because I don't want it to be obvious who it is, because that would be unfair. But no, it's someone that everyone listening to this will know the face and will know the name. So first of all, why did you decide to write about this relationship? I mean, given the concern that she obviously had with privacy and your desire to keep her identity protected. This does put you at a bit of a risk, no? I don't think it puts me at risk. I mean, I was very concerned about identifying her because I didn't think that would be fair. But to be honest with you, I wrote about it as a way of trying to deal with what happened because I found it very difficult and very painful. I'd spent a fair bit of time with her. I think we got on tremendously well. I just liked her as a human being, but the way that the relationship ended was not optimal, I think it'd be fair to say, and I took it very difficult, very hard. So actually, the reason for writing about it was to try and think it through for my own purposes and understand it. Paul, just as a, a bit of a wingman here, for those who haven't read the story, I just want to point out, it's not as though 
you were the only one really pursuing this. She was very direct with you. And as you note in your story, sort of came after you a little bit. I just want to give that context. And now, okay, you can resume answering Ashley's question. I just want to make sure everyone knows it was two-sided. Thank you. So what happened was we went to dinner, which was kind of more like an interview really rather than a dinner. And she pelted me with questions, which I think were designed to sort of sort through my motivation, which I thought was perfectly fair, actually. And one of the first questions was, do you read books? To which I said, well, I studied English literature at Oxford University. Of course I read books. And she looked surprised and said, no man in New York reads books, which I found rather surprising. And then she asked me what my favorite novel was. And I told her, and it was the same as hers. And so there's sort of immediately, oh, there's a surprise. And from then on, it was almost like the wind had changed. And suddenly she went from sort of being suspicious, I think would be the, the fair description, to being sort of interested. She gave me her number and then we met the next day, had tea, and she told me, she said, love bombing is a red flag. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what that means. I think perhaps English people should do more therapy. And I hadn't done any therapy and I had no idea what it meant. But before I could look it up, she kissed me. I was thinking, oh, this is a surprise. And then I'll be discreet. But basically, we spent a lot of time together over a period of time. And we just sort of talked endlessly, really, and had a lot of fun. And it was entertaining, amusing, often poignant. I just thought this is a really nice woman. What then happened was that there was a whole series of personal catastrophes that happened to me, actually in a week over Christmas, like the final conversation with my oldest friend, who I'd known literally since my first week at Oxford. My mother, who was elderly, fell downstairs and broke lots of bones. And another friend was told that his cancer was inoperable and he was sent home to die, couldn't have any treatment. This all happened in the space of seven days. And she was initially wonderfully supportive over that. And I then sort of let go a little bit and said how I was feeling about her. And then suddenly, bang, a text saying I'm dumped, which was a surprise. It didn't seem in character. She liked to do something in what was frankly rather a brutal way. It then got worse, actually, because we had one final meeting. And I went there thinking, well, this is over. It'd be just very nice to say thank you and goodbye. And I wish her all the best and so on. But what actually happened was she told me that she didn't trust me and she felt used by me. And that was the thing that I felt profoundly saddened by, really. Because I mean, I hadn't used her. We'd just spent a bit of time together. I'd actually spent a lot of time trying to think about her career and what she does next and coming up with a lot of ideas which come partly from my own background. I trained at the BBC and used to work in radio and television for a long time. So I kind of came up with ideas which I think if she'd implemented them would have made her the next Oprah because she has such extraordinary warmth and charm on camera, not merely because she's beautiful, but because of her personality. And I really think there was a career opportunity there. So we did talk a lot about her and her career. And it was sort of mysterious suddenly to be told that I was using her. It seemed really very peculiar. Paul, as you note, though, and I can understand this, a man gets a text saying the relationship has been broken off. I found it very interesting because you presented it as a theoretical case to a friend who deals in matters of the mind. And can you just tell us what for your friend diagnosed this sort of behavior? So I spoke to psychologists and I described this woman's background and some of her experiences with men. I didn't name her and I didn't say anything about what had happened between us. And I said to my friend, so how would somebody like that behave? And the psychologist friend said, well, she would run towards you at a million miles an hour. And if you show any emotion in return, she'll run just as fast in the opposite direction, which is exactly what happened. Okay, Paul. And then my follow-up question, maybe staying on the theme of matters of the mind and psychology, if you found yourself perhaps on your dating app again, saw a similar sort of individual, would you be still tempted to click or do you think, hmm, maybe this is sort of a type that might be repeating itself? It's the perfect question, isn't it? And I've asked myself it a lot. So would I do it again? 
I don't think I would fail. I don't think I'd refuse to do it again, but I think I would be much more cautious. Even more sceptical, I think, would be a better way of saying it. Is this one of the things that's really difficult to escape because her public profile is so high? Or are you able to tune that out? It was difficult to start with. I didn't come to New York for a long time afterwards. And I actively avoid finding any news about her. I'm actually talking to you from the French Alps. And although I spend a lot of time in New York and have done for 10 years and was planning to move there, I decided I'd spend the winter skiing because that might be kind of good for the mental health as well as the physical health. It's an odd one. Well, at least you're not in a monastery. (laughs) Yes, this is true. If you're going to go get your wounds over, that's the place to go. Well, Paul, I think I can speak for Michael and I when I say that we are trying to guess who this is, even though it's against our better instincts. So please forgive us for that. But thank you so much for this great story. And if we do figure out who it is, we too will keep her identity a secret. You're very kind. Thank you. I think it's only the right thing to do. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Okay, Michael, it's the weekend. I know you've got something fascinating to recommend for us. I do. And maybe the theme of this week is stories about people behaving really badly. And this one is pretty fascinating. I've watched one episode so far. It is called Griselda and it is on Netflix and it stars Sofia Vergara, who you probably know from Modern Family. And it's brought to us by the team that did Narcos. I don't know if you watched that, but it starts, the show starts with this quote from Pablo Escobar, the notorious narco lord, which says, the only man I was ever afraid of was a woman named Griselda Blanco. And this is the true story of how she in the 70s into the 80s became one of the great drug dealers in the world. So I got to tell you, it's like she's just, you can't take your eyes off her. The bad behavior, the drama inside of this story. I'm one episode, two episodes in. It's, it's sort of like a female version almost of Scarface in some ways, but it's pretty amazing. As I say, it's based in reality, how she came to Miami and then started to set up and running uh, 10 years as a drug operation in New York City. So it is called Griselda. It is on Netflix right now. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Michael, love talking to you. Can't wait to see you in London. Dinner at the River Cafe. It's already booked. We please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alison Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. Our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.